Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. I've been getting in my steps, lifting weights, and now I'm trying really hard to get as much protein as I can. That's why I'm excited about trying Clean Simple Eats because they're just that, clean and simple. Their protein powder is always grass-fed with no seed oils or artificial ingredients. It's third-party tested and non-GMO and gluten-free. They've got 26 delicious all-natural flavors. You really can't go wrong with any of them. They've got Simply Vanilla and other unique flavors like cookies and cream, caramel toffee, and even cinnamon roll. I have a feeling my entire family may just like Clean Simple Eats protein powder, and they're probably going to use it every day because it's so easy to put into your milk or a recipe my daughter loves to bake or in a smoothie, which my son loves to drink almost every day. You can It's amazing really in any form. Visit cleansimpleeats.com and use the code ASKLISA20 at checkout for 20% off your first order. That's cleansimpleeats.com with the code ASKLISA20 for 20% off your first order. Hi, I'm Rena Nainen, and this is Ask Lisa, the Psychology of Parenting podcast. It's a podcast to help parents better understand their kids. Dr. Lisa Demore, a psychologist with three decades of experience and the author of three New York Times best-selling parenting books, takes your questions. Both of us are moms ourselves, and we're eager to hear from you. So send us your questions to asklisa at drlisademore.com. And you can join our community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The handle is at Lisa Podcast. And also subscribe to our brand new YouTube channel, Ask Lisa Podcast. Episode 133, a conversation with U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy. Well, I could not be more excited about the guest we're about to have on, Lisa, the U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy. You know, I interviewed him at the start of the pandemic when he wrote this book called Together, The Healing Power of Human Connection in a Sometimes Lonely World. And it's crazy because literally lockdown had just started when he was out talking about this book. And it's crazy because he was keying in. He he decided to write a book after leaving his first time as U.S. Surgeon General during the Obama administration. And he's like, what is the biggest issue facing Americans today? He thought maybe it's going to be the op- opioid crisis, which is significant. And he found out, no, the people feel isolated. They feel invisible. They feel insignificant. And that's why he chose to write that book. Um, what timing uh, in light of how isolating the pandemic ended up being for so many people. So true. And you spoke to him earlier this year in Ohio. I did. I had the honor of having an in-person conversation. It was actually a recording for his podcast. We did it at the City Club in Cleveland, and it was, it was just wonderful. We had mm-hmm. a great time talking. 
He's got a great podcast too. It's called House Calls. We're going to tell you more about that at the end of the show. Um, it's worth subscribing to. But let me, without further ado, introduce our guest. Dr. Morthy is serving in his second term as the U.S. Surgeon General. He works to advance health and well-being for the country. And unlike his predecessors, who primarily tackled physical illness, Dr. Morthy's really focused on the connection between mind, heart, and well-being. I just love that. And during his tenure, he's also called the nation's attention to the vital need to address the growing mental health crisis in America, particularly around younger people. And he shed light on our epidemic of loneliness and isolation. He's also the first U.S. Surgeon General to host that podcast you mentioned, Lisa, House Calls with Dr. Vivek Morthy, where he invites guests and listeners to explore how we can all build a more connected and meaningful life. He also is the father of a six-year-old boy and a five-year-old girl, so busy at work and busy at home. Welcome, Dr. Murthy. We are thrilled to have you here. Uh, well, thank you both so much. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Rina. I'm just thrilled to be having this conversation with two people who I very much admire, so glad that we're going to be talking. Me too. All right, here we go. You ready for some questions? Yeah. Okay. So how has the experience of being a parent yourself changed your perspective on the work you do? Well, you know, having kids has been probably the most important development in my life. And it has changed so much for me. I had my first child uh, when I was actually in the middle of my first stint as Surgeon General. And I remember even the process of becoming a parent was just, it required negotiating and thinking through a lot. For example, like there had not been uh, to our recollection, the Surgeon General who had had a child in office for probably a century or more, mm -hmm. if ever. Wow. And so all these questions about, do you take parental leave, you know, as uh, in, can the Surgeon General take parental leave? Like all of these questions were coming up. But it was a time that really uh, focused me on two things. One is what was happening to parents. Uh, and it, And I came to realize that you know, when you're blessed with a child, that is indeed a blessing, but it doesn't mean that it's an easy journey. And um, from the get-go, there were a lot of very difficult things to negotiate, confusing things to negotiate. Now, unlike 50, 75 years ago, in society, people aren't growing up in extended families where they're seeing, you know, younger nieces and nephews and cousins getting raised and having some familiarity with how to raise a baby when they're uh, a parent themselves. Uh, unlike that, like we had no experience, my wife and I, uh, bringing up a child or figuring out how to uh, handle a baby, how to figure out if that cry means your baby's hungry or they're tired or they mm -hmm. want to snuggle or if it's none of those things and something's like actually going wrong and they're sick. Um, so there's a lot to learn and it was a pretty steep learning curve. A lot of 3 a.m. waking up in the middle of the night, Googling <laughs> like, what is the best diaper? What do you do for the <laughs> I love that. Oh I love that even the U.S. Surgeon General is Googling it at night about what's happening with their oh, yeah. baby. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's one of those things. It's like my, my wife, Alice, and I are both trained in internal medicine, so not in pediatrics. And, you know, we often used to say, like, as internists, you know, you know, kids puzzle us. We're like, well, how, how do you interpret all these various symptoms that kids are having? So when we became parents, you know, we were mindful about not trying to play doctor to our child. But, you know, there's a lot we didn't know, like, as well. So anyway, it was a humbling experience. But lastly, I'll just say mm -hmm. the other way it, it changed my, my outlook was it really gave me a different lens through which to look at at kids and at young adults as they're growing up. And to think about the future, you know, where I, I want the future to be bright for my kids and for all kids, but uh, it's also why I feel a great sense of urgency 
about so many of the mm-hmm. challenges we're dealing with now, whether it's whether it's violence in our communities, whether it's political polarization, whether it's climate change, like the threats to how the world will look for our kids are uh, they abound and they're all around us. We have to attack them with urgency, but we can't do any of that well if we're not dealing with the immediate crisis in front of us, which is the mental health crisis in America. And I think about mental health as the fuel that allows us to show up in our lives for our family, for our friends at work, in school, in our community. And if we're sapped of that strength, then it doesn't matter how urgent the challenge is in front of us, we're not able to muster the strength to come together and address it. And we're not able to do that together. So um, this is how having kids for me has really sharpened my focus on what I think is the defining public health challenge of our time, which is a mental health crisis. Speaking of of the urgency, back in May, you issued two advisories. One was talking about the effects of social media on youth and mental health. The other was about the epidemic of loneliness and isolation. And here's here's what was written in that advisory that you put out. It says, I'm going to quote directly here, the mortality impact of being socially disconnected is similar to that caused by smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day and even greater than associated with obesity and physical inactivity. You go on to say that the number of close friendships have actually declined over the decade of the past decade. Wow. Why did you choose to issue this advisory and what do you hope to change? Well, Rina, I I realize that, you know, when you're in a public health role, as I've been privileged to serve in, there are so many public health issues that you could address, right? Then they're really important issues facing our country, whether it's cardiovascular disease, cancer, uh, you know, other illnesses. But I found myself really wondering, what is the cause behind the cause? What's the the deeper root of what's driving uh, not only disease and dysfunction in our country, but impairing our ability to address it uh, as well? And that's where I, I found that this issue of loneliness and isolation is actually quite profound. And it's one of these issues that affects millions of people, but people don't often know it because it hides in the shadows. We don't go around talking about our struggles with loneliness. And and for that reason, it, it remains you know, enshrouded in, in mystery. But what I came to realize in my first stint as Surgeon General in talking to people around the country was that this was extraordinarily common. Uh, people of all ages, including college students on campuses where they were surrounded by thousands of other students were telling me, you know, I feel really alone. I feel really isolated. And so I realized it was an incredibly common. But the other thing I realized, Rena, is that it was also consequential and consequential for our mental health. People who are struggling with that sense of disconnection and loneliness, they are at increased risk for anxiety, depression, and suicide. But they're also at increased risk for physical illness like heart disease, uh, like dementia, and premature death. And that's where this really stunning uh, finding uh, that struggling with social disconnection uh, is on par, actually, with in terms of health risk with smoking daily and even constitutes even greater risks for mortality uh, than what we see with obesity and physical inactivity. That's where that really, uh, really hits you when you realize, hey, this is more than just a bad feeling, being lonely. This is really bad for our health. But finally, I'll just say this. If you go beyond health, it turns out loneliness and isolation have profound impacts there too. Communities that are actually more connected with one another, they tend to be more economically prosperous. They have lower levels of violence. They're more resilient in the face of adversity like hurricanes or tornadoes. And if you think about all these threats we're facing today, all these challenges that we have to encounter and deal with for ourselves and for future generations, 
we are much we're impaired in our ability to really pull the country together and do that and 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 build a unified response to these threats when people are lonely, isolated and fragmented. If you're out there seeking to divide a community or divide a country, what you would do is you would target communities that are feeling isolated because it's easier to turn them against each other. Uh, so however you look at it, whether it's the health of society and democracy, whether it's the health of workplaces and schools or the mental and physical health of individuals, it turns out our connection to one another is really essential for our well-being. Mental health, you know, is my world um, and kids and adolescents especially. And as you are aware, you've done such an extraordinary job of getting the word out about, you know, teenagers have suffered massively and mightily um, pre-pandemic and then, you know, through the pandemic and now. One of the things that is, um, that comes up a lot in this is gender. And we have a lot of data showing that, um, you know, CDC reports indicating that girls have suffered um, quite a bit. I have my questions about if we are missing the suffering of boys. I think a lot of times our measures are designed to ask questions about what we call internalizing disorders, you know, depression, anxiety, which girls tend to report. They're not great necessarily at picking up the precursors of externalizing disorders. So I have some concerns that boys are flying a bit under the radar in terms of their distress. So I'd love your thoughts on this. And then also just back to you being a dad, you've got a boy, you've got a girl, you know, does um, what you know, as you look at the mental health landscape of young people, is that shaping life at home? What do you think on this? It's such a good question, Lisa. And I, I actually think your instincts are right, that I do think we are missing a lot of the suffering that boys are are dealing with that often shows up differently or flies under the radar. To be clear, this isn't in any way to minimize the suffering that girls are going through. Like Girls are, are really struggling. We've seen rates of uh, suicide and, and sexual violence all go up uh, among uh, girls. We've got to do better for girls. But it turns out that girls and boys are both suffering. Um, but unless we know what to look for, uh, unless we understand that sometimes they may speak about their suffering differently, may exhibit it differently, then I do think you're right that we, we're going to miss part of the picture. And I do think that that to some extent is happening with boys. Um, you know, boy, what's And the reason that boys and girls, I think, and that, well, obviously we're stereotyping here, there's a spectrum uh, within boys and girls mm -hmm. of how they may experience or express their suffering. But I think part of the reason that there's that boys are more reluctant to admit, uh, perhaps, to struggling with uh, feelings of anxiety or depression have to do with culturally how we raise boys. You know, like in Niobe Way, uh, in, you know, Columbia has done a, a really great job. Uh, sorry, at NYU has done a really interesting uh, job talking about the differences that evolve in boys over time. Like, and she studied the friendships that boys have and has found that, you know, at really young ages, boys actually talk about their friends in very similar ways to girls. They may, might say things like, oh, I really love my friend. I can't wait to see my friend again. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I can't live without my friend. Like, it, I, I, something great happens. I really want to share that with my friend. Like, they talk about their friends in very similar ways. But then something happens uh, when boys get to middle and later adolescence, which is that we somehow teach them and by we, I mean societal cues around them, teach them that, hey, you know, it's not okay uh, as a guy to talk about your feelings in this way. It's not okay to talk about needing other people. It's not okay um, to say that you love someone unless they're your romantic partner. And mm -hmm. so we were essentially telling boys it's not okay to feel. 
right? And as human beings, we all feel, uh, whether we're, we're boys or girls, whether we're men or, or women, like all of us feel. Um, but somehow we're telling millions and millions of young boys as they grow up that uh, that's, that's not the manly thing to do. It's not masculine. Uh, and so I think part of what I believe what we have to do is, is re-examine how we're talking about strength and defining strength. Like mm -hmm. if, if you define strength or if we lead young people to think that strength is who's the loudest voice in the room, who can push other people around the most and exert the most physical strength, you know, over them and force over them, uh, who can be the most aggressive, uh, who can demonstrate confidence, whether it's founded or not. Uh, if we, mm -hmm. if this is how we're defining strength in, in the superficial optical way, uh, I think we do a disservice uh, to boys. I think we sell them, uh, you know, a story that's just not true about where real strength mm -hmm. comes from. Dr. Murthy, one of the problems is social media, right? You see these stereotypes play out, the things, you know, my son's really into football. You see lots of these macho football videos that he's watching. How do we protect our children? What do you think the role of government should be in protecting our children from social media? Well, two things I'd say here. One, I think on a culture front, look, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with with young boys or girls, uh, seeing people who are demonstrating physical strength or athletic ability and thinking that that's desirable, you know, like that, it's good to be strong. I, I actually think all of us, uh, just from a health perspective, should aim to to do what, you know, I, uh, a wonderful author I like, Naval Ravikant, said, which is uh, to, to have strong bodies, minds at peace, and homes full of love, mm -hmm. right? That's what we should want mm. for everyone. That's so good. Um, credit to Naval, not, not to me. But uh, <laughs> I, I think we should be encouraging that. The question is, how do you use physical strength? Do you use it to harm other people or to protect people? Do you use it to mm. support your strength and well-being and to be able to do things in your life for yourself, your family, and your community? Uh, or do you use it, you know, to... Uh, to get compliments, you know, to try to build up your, your you know, sort of your, your ego. Like, I mean, these are different ways of using strength. And so I think cultivating strength is a good thing. How we use it is another thing. Um, mm -hmm. But these are mm -hmm. cultural forces. And this is a place where I think government doesn't shape culture in the most powerful ways. It is people. It is us. It is institutions. It is how we tell stories through movies and books. Um, it's the choices we make as educational institutions and workplaces. These are, and it's the messages that we get uh, in church and synagogue and our temples and mosques, you know, every weekend. Like these are the messages and uh, forces that shape our culture. When it comes though, to social media, to your point about government, this is a place where I do think government has an important role to play. It's not the only player here. You know, we need uh, kids and parents also to think about their role when it comes to social media. But what we've done for the last 20 years is we've taken the entire responsibility, and I would say burden, of managing a new technology, social media, that most parents did not grow up with, that's rapidly evolving, that's engineered and designed with some of the best product designers in the world with the intention of maximizing how much time our kids spend on them. And we put the entire burden of managing that on the shoulders of parents. And we said, good luck. And in my mind, yes. that is absolutely unacceptable. That is a recipe for disaster. And I think it's why we're seeing uh, what we're seeing right now, which is the kids who are spending uh, adolescence on average three hours or more on social media face double the risk uh, of anxiety and depression symptoms, which is concerning because the average amount of use among adolescents is three and a half hours a day. So I think where government needs to step in is to number one, establish safety standards 
uh, for social media, just like we have safety standards for automobiles, which make them safer, standards that are clear, that are scientifically based, and that are actually enforced uh, by government. But we also need uh, the government to establish requirements around data transparency. Many of the researchers uh, that I have spoken to over the last couple of years who focused their life's work on social media have said they think that there's more there, there's more nuance there, but they can't get the data from companies to fully understand the extent of impact on our kids. Like as a parent, like I don't want to feel like a company is hiding information from me about how a product or a platform might be affecting my children. That doesn't feel right. Uh, and it's not right. And so these uh, requirements should be there and they should be enforced. So this is these are places where I think government does have a role. Like for the last 20 years, we've left it up to companies to to police themselves and to do their best. And they've taken some measures, don't get me wrong, to try to make their platforms a bit better. But the proof is in the pudding. And it is telling us right now, yeah. the data, that our kids are not doing well. And kids themselves, when I do focus groups with them all around the country, kids themselves say, that social media often makes them feel worse about themselves, worse about their friendships, but they can't get off of it because they feel like they're addicted yeah. to these platforms. So as we wait, right, I, I'm in agreement with you on the kinds of changes I'd love to be seen made at the governmental level, at the you know institutional level. These will take time, right? What, what would you want parents to do right mm -hmm. now? when it comes to their kids and social media? Like in the meantime, yeah. how can we be most useful? Yeah, well, and then this is tough. You know, there's no simple step here, but there are a few things I can. I think we can do. And by the way, I, typically we think about policy as, you know, as an area where progress is slow. It takes time to pass laws, mm -hmm. to debate them, et cetera. This is a place where I feel a great sense of urgency. And I think it's important for all of us who are parents, who have kids in our lives, who care about kids, regardless of whether we have children ourselves or not. It's important for all of us to make our voice heard, to, to make sure we're talking to policymakers, to let them know that this is not a space where we can afford to wait. You know, our kids are living their lives right now. And one year in the life of an adolescent, that is a long time where a lot of development happens. I've always said teen years are like dog years. <laughs> you know, like one year one year for a teenager is like seven years, you know, for an adult. Perhaps, yeah. But, but look, I do think that there are things that parents can do today. So uh, one, I, I would say that if you have a child who has not started using social media yet, I think delaying their use of social media uh, as long as you can, ideally until after middle school, is something I would highly recommend. It's something that we're going to do for our kids, you know, as they grow up. Um, but the other thing uh, to note is that this is not easy. Well, obviously, there's a lot of peer pressure for kids to use social media. And parents may wonder, hey, if my child's the only one who's not on social media, are they going to be even more isolated and left out? And that's a really understandable worry. And this is why I actually think it's, it's important for parents to partner with each other and support one another in this. Because if you've got a couple of other parents who are taking similar steps with their child and delaying uh, the, you know, the age of use, uh, that not only makes it a little easier for you, but your child also has other people that they know then in their lives who are taking a similar path. But I would also second say, if your child's already on social media, uh, a, a few things that I'd recommend. One is to, mm -hmm. to make sure you, you have a conversation and ideally, ideally several conversations over time with your child about their use of social media. You want to understand like what platforms is your child using? What, what use cases are they? Are they using social media primarily to share things they're doing? If they're using it to consume content, what, what are they looking for on social media? Um, and you also want them to understand like what's appropriate and not appropriate 
on social media, if they are being harassed or bullied, especially by a stranger, like you want them to be able to, to tell you that and to know that that's not right. Um, so those conversations, starting them is really important. Uh, your child may not say anything to you in the first one, but knowing that you want to have the conversation, knowing that you're somebody they can go to if they feel uncomfortable, threatened, or they need help, that is really vital. Uh, the last thing I'll just say for parents is uh, if your child's already on social media, making sure that you're creating tech-free zones in your child's day is also very important. Now, what are tech-free zones? These are times and spaces in your child's life where they can be without social media and ideally without uh, technology. And you want to create these zones and the spaces uh, where your child is engaged in activities that are vital to their development. So think about sleep, think about physical activity, think about in-person interaction. And this could look like you know, telling your, your kids that there's not going to be any technology use uh, for the half hour, hour before they go to bed and then throughout the night. Uh, because again, near, about a third of adolescents are saying that they're staying up till midnight or later uh, on their devices. And a lot of that is social media use. That takes away from sleep, which increases the risk of mental health challenges for kids. But you can also make mealtimes, tech-free zones, where, mm -hmm. you, when kids are going to be potentially with family or each other. Um, you can make physical activity times when they're out playing sports or when they're just out with their friends. Also, uh, you, you know, out with friends, you know, for physical activity, you can make that tech-free time as well. Um, these all require negotiation. Again, this is hard to do alone, but it's much easier when you're partnering with other parents uh, to do it. Look, as parents, we help each other in a lot of different spaces, right? I turn to parents all the time, fellow parents for help. Initially, it was on what kind of diapers should we get? What kind of baby formula is okay? Uh, is it normal that my child's not sleeping regularly for the first nine months? Like all these things are things that I turn to other <laughs> parents for help on. This is one of the areas where as parents, we've got to support each other, have each other's backs. And if your kid's like, no one else's parents are making me uh, not use you know, my phone like throughout the night, you can say, no, no, no. Actually, we've got a couple other parents who are all working together. Um, and lastly, I'll leave parents with this too. I have now had the chance to speak to many young uh, people, young adults now, who during early adolescence ended up having parents who said, you know what, we're not going to start social media use for you now. We're going to wait until you're in high school and in a few cases even after high school. And what's interesting, almost to a T, is that when I asked those now young adults, how'd you feel about that? Most of them say, you know what, they fought it, like initially. But then within a year or so, they all thanked their parents. And I was like, really? Well, what, what were you thanking them for? And they said, well, they looked around and they saw their their classmates like, and how social media was impacting them, how it was distracting them from other things, how they were getting embroiled in feuds and struggles and how they were being bullied online and all of this. And they, they didn't have to deal with that. Uh, as one young woman told me who just graduated from college and actually never used social media throughout grade school, she said, you know, I ended up having a smaller circle of friends but they were really good friends and I was really happy. Mm. And that's what I want. Oh, that is so good. That is so good. I know I accidentally, my son has five minutes. He's in seventh grade, allowed five minutes on Snapchat and uh, and that's it. And and it was a negotiation and I accidentally was going through his Snapchat and hit save on a video, which you're never supposed to do. That is like the most uncool thing. <laughs> Massive blow up between us over this. And he explained to me why this is uncool, but it's so stressful. And as you mentioned, so lonely for parents. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back on the Ask Lisa podcast. EarthBreeze EcoSheets look just like a dryer sheet, but instead of being a dryer sheet, they're in fact an ultra-concentrated liquidless laundry detergent. It's really the best of all worlds. 
EarthBreeze is tough on stains and odors while being kind to the planet and to your skin. Personally, I get a huge kick out of using EarthBreeze. I love the fact that it takes up less space, is better for the environment, and yet it leaves my clothes smelling so good and it gets them so clean. Here's the bottom line. Making a positive impact in the world doesn't have to come at a cost to you. My clothes are clean, they smell great, and I feel like I actually did something good, not just for my laundry, but also for the earth. Right now, my listeners can receive 40% off EarthBreeze just by going to earthbreeze.com slash asklisa. That's earthbreeze.com slash asklisa to cut out single-use plastic in your laundry room and claim 40% off your subscription. earthbreeze.com slash asklisa. I'm all for healthy habits, but I don't trust quick fixes. This is why I love Daily Harvest. They take all of the work out of eating well, and all I have to do is enjoy. Daily Harvest makes it so easy for me to eat in the nutritious and delicious ways that I like. They take the planning, the prep, the cleanup out of cooking, and they deliver meals that are packed with vegetables and fruits straight to my door. The other thing I love about them is that it's not the same old boring meals. I love their dragon fruit and lime smoothie. I also love their butternut squash and rosemary soup. They also have this wonderful herb squash and asparagus risotto. Create healthy habits that last with Daily Harvest. For a limited time only, go to dailyharvest.com slash asklisa to get $30 off your first box plus free shipping. That's dailyharvest.com slash asklisa for $30 off your first box and free shipping. dailyharvest.com slash asklisa. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. We spend a lot of time teaching our kids please and thank you. But one thing I've realized I haven't spent a lot of time teaching my children is how to be financially responsible. We started using the Greenlight app and it's made a difference in helping them have that conversation about money and to really understand how it can affect their lives. Greenlight's a debit card and a money app that's made for families. I can send money to my kids, keep an eye on their spending and their savings. I didn't think I would need this app, but my kids are absolutely loving it and they're getting the concept of what it means to save. I love the lessons they're learning. I love the games they're playing. I love that they are being educated at a younger age that you need to learn how to save. Sign up for the Greenlight app today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash asklisa. That's greenlight.com slash asklisa to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash asklisa. Welcome back to the Ask Lisa podcast. Is there anything as you are talking about, you know, real people, human beings that you're interacting with, seeing the reflexive policy, is there one thing in tech policy you feel could be transformative for our kids in social media and for mental health if that one change were to be made? Well, I think with social media, the safety standards could be transformative. Like think about our journey with automobiles. There was a time when I was growing up where automobile death rates were incredibly high and we needed to do something like as a country, we like literally were losing uh, thousands and thousands of people every year uh, mm-hmm. to motor vehicle accidents, mm-hmm. including young people. Now the solution wasn't, you know what, let's get rid of cars and go back to horses and buggies. The The solution <laughs> was, okay, this is technology that has some benefits to our life, but we need to find a way to make it safer. 
And so automobile safety standards, which helped make sure that cars had seatbelts, uh, which helped make sure that people actually had to use those seatbelts, which put in place airbags and other safety, um, you know, safety sort of mechanisms and tools, these played a vital role in dramatically reducing motor vehicle deaths in our country. Those safety standards are what we need to have in place now. If you look at how kids are being harmed by social media, uh, it's happening in part because they're being exposed to harmful content, often very violent, very sexual content, even though they may not be able to watch a PG-13 movie, yet they're somehow on social media seeing this very explicit content. So there's extreme and harmful content. Many kids are also being exposed to harassment and bullying online. Uh, You know, a significant number, uh, six out of 10 adolescent girls are saying they have been approached by strangers on social media in ways Mm -hmm. that have made them feel uncomfortable. That should not happen. But there's also the effect, uh, what I think of as the um, the sort of crowding out effect uh, that social media has on other healthy activities. Uh, Because kids are spending on average three and a half hours a day on social media, in many cases, much more than that, uh, that's time that's often taken away from sleep from in-person interactions and from uh, healthy physical activity. And what we need in part are safety standards that protect kids against the types of features that would seek to manipulate the minds of children into excessive use. And this is where it is so important, as both of you know well, for people to understand that kids are not just little adults, right? Their brains, and especially in adolescence, are at a fundamentally different stage of development. And because their brain is a different phase of development, they are much more prone to being influenced by the social activities and suggestions of other people. Uh, they're more vulnerable when it comes to the effects of social media. So look, all of us growing up, you know, we've compared ourselves to others for, for years and years and for millennia, I would say. And so for people who are thinking, yeah, you know, kids here comparing themselves to others, haven't been doing that forever. This is different. It's different fundamentally in scale because maybe I compared myself to a few kids I saw in school, you know, you know, when I was in seventh, eighth, ninth grade here and there, and I came back, felt bad that they had something I didn't have, or maybe, uh, you know, they, they had something, uh, you know, in their lives, a vacation Mm -hmm. they were going on that I didn't have access to. Maybe I felt bad about that. But today, like a young person can see thousands of images uh, in a given day on social media and I, and be comparing themselves constantly to those people, which is why kids say all the time, using social media often makes them feel worse about themselves. Yeah. It's why so many young people, I think, are struggling with you know with issues with body image uh, because they're comparing themselves to unrealistic standards that they're seeing on social media, and that can just flood their feeds. Yeah. It's so true. To switch gears a little bit. Um, I was thinking the other day, so I've, I've always known I wanted to be a psychologist. I knew as a child that I did. And so when I got to college, the first thing I did was sign up for a developmental psychology course. And it was first semester, freshman year. And I still remember the first words out of the professor's mouth. I remember it just like a movie in my head. He came to the front of the stage and he said, if you want to know how kids are doing, look at how their parents mm. are doing. So if you, if we think about mental health in that lens, you know, that we want to protect the mental health of kids and adolescents, that that involves protecting the mental health of their parents. If you had to say one thing, like one thing that you want the parents who are listening to do to cultivate their own mental health, what would you recommend? Uh, well, your your professor is spot on. And one of the biggest determinants of a child's mental health and well-being is the mental health of the people at home. And um, our homes can build us up or they can break us down. And we... I think as parents, I say this not because I want parents to feel guilty. 
Um, I actually think we're living at a time where parents are dealing with more demands, more stressors, and they're having to navigate more new circumstances than perhaps at any other time in modern history. And so parenting is harder. Uh, and parenting is also can be a lonely experience. And this is something we actually don't talk about a lot, uh, but it gets to what I would recommend as a as a solution here for parents. Like I still remember when I when we had our first child, uh, when I was serving as Surgeon General the first time around, and pe- people are, you know, on the outside, they're like, oh my God, what a great time. You're having this wonderful, you know, this child, what a great time in your life. And you must be just thrilled all the time. But the thing is, actually, I remember we were at home. Uh, my wife and I were both taking some parental leave. We were like up at crazy hours at 3 a.m. Everyone else is sleeping. People are going to work. They're doing their thing. We were not living close to family, as so many parents, unfortunately, aren't either. And it feels really lonely, you know? And and you don't feel like complaining because at that point, people are like, you were just blessed with this amazing child. Like, were you ungrateful? Like, you know, what's going on? And so it can be a very lonely experience to be... Um, to be a parent and not just in those early stages, but later, like as one of the things I worry about a lot with parents is that these mental health struggles we're seeing among kids, parents are beating themselves up and saying, is this my fault? Mm -hmm. Is this evidence that I'm a bad parent? Mm -hmm. They see their children struggling also with social media or with loneliness. And they say, I guess this is me. I wasn't able to like protect my child. And so I, I do want parents first and foremost to know that more is being asked of them today than I think is fair or in many cases humanly possible to deliver which is why like to really do well in parenting but also to survive and thrive as a parent yourself we do need each other we need connection to one another and support and this is the most important thing i think uh, a parent could do to support and sustain themselves is to build healthy social connection into their life now i know that's not easy to do you know as a parent one of the, the things you have in least supply is time Right. And so like, when are you going to go out and just hang out with a, a whole bunch of friends? But th- right. This is why I also tell parents that like building social connection is not always about the long stretches of time we have with one another. It's about the small moments where we make an active decision to text a friend, you know, for, and we, even if that just takes 10, 15 seconds when we might be having a hard time or to text a friend when something good happens, because sharing our joy is a way of also mm-hmm. strengthening our connections with one another. It's also, one thing we can also do is to just take opportunities to check on one another. Um, you know, one of the things I found to be most powerful is like as a parent early on, like we felt we had no time to go out and do things, but we finally had a friend who said to us, who, she was a wise parent herself, but she said, you know what? I'm just coming over and you don't need, don't worry about feeding me or anything like that. I'm just coming over and I'm going to hold your baby so that you can go literally Aww. just sit somewhere and breathe. And I will tell you, that was such a blessing for us to have a friend who did that. But the truth is, we can do that for other people. So just this past weekend, uh, we had a family member who came over uh, with two new two two kids uh, who are really small. They're under two. And the parents are stressed and they're they're tired. And my wife, in her enduring wisdom, just said to them, you know what? The parent's job is when you in situations like this is just to eat, to talk, and to have fun. It's our job to take care of your kids. So let us do that. Oh, so, you know, we just sat there and hung oh, out with the kids so and the parents had a chance to relax. So these things don't actually take a lot of time, but these small moments where we reach out and support another parent, where we allow ourselves to receive the support of another parent and not think that means somehow we're not cutting it, 
These are the moments that can help strengthen our social mm-hmm. connection with one another. So as a parent, give yourself that permission uh, to accept help. Give yourself the permission to ask for help because there are often a lot of people on the outside who aren't sure, should I intrude? Should I check in? Should I just give them space? They may not know uh, that you could use a hand or an ear to listen to you or somebody to just sit, sit there with your child and allow you to just take a shower or get a meal or just- Yeah, it's the shower. Yeah. It's the shower <laughs> that was always for me what it came down to. But what great advice, because I, you know, as my, I've got two middle schoolers, and one of the things that was transformative for me, for us under COVID, was four or five people of our, of our friends in the neighborhood would get together at five o'clock and work out. We, we got these weights that would work out. And now for the month of August, our challenge is everyone's got to reach an average of 10,000 steps a day. Uh So we have a WhatsApp group where we're all communicating. So it doesn't matter where they live, anyone can take part in the challenge, but it's forcing, it's it's holding us accountable. But I'm realizing if I don't take care of my own health, and that means physical health for me, uh, it regulates everything upstairs for me, I'm not a good parent. And and I am angry and, and, and I just don't like the parent that I become when I don't work out. So that's so great to hear about that, finding that connectivity and helping other parents. Yeah. And parents can, I love what you're talking about, uh, Rena, because in some ways you're, you're helping hold each other accountable, but in, mm-hmm. in kind ways. Right. And, yes. and as parents, I think sometimes we need both permission and encouragement to do things for ourselves. You know, I think parents can often feel like, hey, I'm being selfish if I'm taking time for myself. But just as you uh, beautifully said, like, we need to do that to not only be able to sustain ourselves so we can care for our kids, but we role model for our kids all the time. You know, it's like as one fellow parent said to me when we had our first child, he said, you know, your kids may sometimes listen to what you say, but they'll more often listen to what you do. Uh, And so like when Mm. we take care of ourselves, when whether that's working out, whether that's eating well, whether that's making time here and there to talk to friends, uh, whether that's uh, managing our own use of social media and drawing boundaries around it so it doesn't invade our sleep or time with others, that all helps our kids also see how they can live Mm -hmm. life in a healthy, balanced, and fulfilling way. I've often said this on the podcast, my favorite parenting advice I found on the inside of a Dove chocolate wrapper, it said, um, don't talk about it, be about it. Mm. And and I, I think that's it's what you're saying. You know, the kids like they're watching us. So we can say one thing, but if what we do doesn't line up, um they they don't take it seriously. Yeah. Speaking of the topic of taking it seriously, you know, what do you think it would take to get insurance companies to cover mental health the way we cover physical health? You know, if you got cancer, you're gonna see your coverage all the way through. But if you have mental health concerns, people are struggling just to get basic health care coverage. They are. And right now, mental health care is not nearly as accessible as it needs to be. We need more mental health providers. We need people to be able to be seen in a more timely way. And we need more modes of delivering that care so that you can get the care where you are, in your home, at school, in your workplace, wherever you are, wherever you want. Um, now, the good news is that we have made some progress on all three of these fronts. And just recently, in fact, uh, just a few weeks ago, uh, President Biden announced uh, a proposed rule that the Department of Health and Human Services is putting forward to actually strengthen something called the Mental Health Parity Law, uh, which was passed in 2008. That was a long time ago. But despite that passing, and it was a law that sought to do what you're talking about, Rena, which is to ensure that insurance companies can't discriminate against mental health care, and that they provide the same level of reimbursement and coverage for it as they do for physical health. But despite that, 
people have still been having problems. They've been uh, they've found that insurance companies throw up these requirements, like for prior authorizations, that block their access to care. They found that an insurance company may say, "Sure, sure, we're covering mental health care," but when they look to see who's in their network. It turns out there are very few, if any, providers. And so mm-hmm. what President Biden announced in this proposed rule was actually a much needed and long-awaited effort to strengthen that parity law to make sure that these loopholes um, you know, can't, can't be there anymore and that insurance companies actually do what uh, people need them to do, which is to provide access uh, to mental health care and to cover it so that people aren't spending down their life savings just to get their child, the health, the mental health care that they need. You know, this is something that that upsets me, Rena, because you've got millions of people across America who are doing their their job, fulfilling their end of the bargain, and paying their premiums every month. And care should be there for them when they need it. And for it not to be, to me, is just such a moral transgression. And and even you know, you mentioned the economics, right, of communities having. Um, good networks that it actually improves the economics of, of what goes on around them. I've st- I've followed the parity laws my whole career. We know that people don't misuse their mental health care coverage if it's expanded. That it's very you know it's like naturally limits itself. And we also know that money spent on mental health care actually reduces costs on physical care. So you know even if um, the moral question aside, right? I mean, it's just it's so. Um, so important. And, and I'm, I'm really hopeful that we can keep moving this in the right direction. I am too. And, and I, th- I actually feel optimistic about this because, you know, in addition to this parity law, we've also in the last two years seen more funding going toward expanding uh, the mental health workforce than we've seen in a long time. We've seen uh, hundreds of millions of dollars go toward building certified community behavioral health clinics, which are clinics which provide trauma-based care uh, and, and crisis care, but that also is available to people regardless of insurance status. Uh, that's a big deal. There are now 500 of these clinics. We need many more, uh, but that's progress. And finally, on the telemedicine front, you know, I talked about the importance of being able to get care to where people are. Um, you know, One of the silver linings of COVID, if there can be one, uh, is that it did accelerate our use of technology to deliver care uh, in a remote sense. And this is a place where we need to make the authorities to do that permanent. We need to be funding the development of, of telemedicine capabilities. And we need to be mm-hmm. adequately reimbursing for that as well. So that, yeah. you know, especially if you're a young person like and you want to be able to do your session with your counselor on your phone, you should be able to do that. Like that, there shouldn't be like a requirement that you have to somehow go in person and drive 30 miles and wait three months to see someone. That is a recipe for for disaster. So there has been yeah. a lot of progress on this in the last two and a half months, more so than I've seen in my entire uh, nearly 30 years in public health. So that's encouraging to me. But we can't stop until everybody who needs mental health care can get high quality care when they need it. That's culturally appropriate. That's what we've got to be able to, to do. That's the benchmark uh, that we should be fighting for. Absolutely. You know, um, I, I want to just the fact that you have focused so much on loneliness, you studied it before you came back into office again. A few years ago, the UK government created a ministry of loneliness, and they were made fun of in the tabloids. And now other countries, including Japan, Australia are looking to start the same. Do you think the US government should have a Department of Loneliness to look at this? It's I'm glad you, you brought this up, because I do remember when that the UK announced that uh, that move to make one of their cabinet ministers essentially in charge of loneliness under their portfolio. Um, and I actually later went and met uh, with the, the, the minister who was focused on loneliness. And 
I think it's it was a brilliant move, and I think it's 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 necessary. Like if you look at government right now, and you say, "Hey, who's in charge of addressing loneliness and rebuilding social connection and community?" It's not clear who that is, right? It's like in some way, shape, or form, maybe everyone, many different entities and agencies are working on pieces of that. But I think we would benefit from having uh, an individual and and a group uh, that is focused on this issue because it crosses across uh, departments. I mean, this is not just a health issue, right? Our loneliness Mm -hmm. and disconnection impact us economically. They impact education. Uh, So there's something that we should all be concerned about. And I think having someone in government who is focused on, one, ensuring that policies across government, that we understand their impact on connection and community, I think that's important. Somebody who can also help us develop uh, a detailed strategy, building on the advisory that we have issued on loneliness and isolation, that framework for a strategy, I think that's important. And finally, that individual can also help to mobilize uh, the broader country uh, behind a common vision uh, and a strategic plan for where we go. So these are all places where government can help. Again, recognizing that to truly solve the loneliness crisis in America, we're going to need organizations, individuals, and communities um, to take a, a hard look at how we are living our lives and ask ourselves, is this what's really best for us? Like we are not, mm. what we need to do is to live people-centered lives, lives that are rooted in relationships, uh, lives that ultimately support the development of healthy relationships. And right now, I, I, I think that we are living more of a work-centered life. Um, I can tell you this, uh, being brutally honest, that that's what I was doing for, for many years. <laughs> and it really was in the years leading up to the pandemic and then particularly the pandemic, that made me realize that, sure, if you stopped me on the street at any point and said, what are your top three priorities in life? I would have talked about the people in my life, my mother, my father, my wife, my sister. But if you looked at where I was really spending the bulk of my time, effort, attention, and energy, it was really on work. And and people mm-hmm. like fit in where it was convenient. Um, but I think that we do that to our detriment. Uh, I, I think that we have underemphasized and lost sight of how important our relationships really are. And this is a cultural shift that has to take place. Culture is driven by people and institutions. Uh, It's driven by the stories that we tell uh, through media and entertainment uh, and through our music. And we have to marshal all of these forces now to tell the story that I believe we need to tell, which is that as a community, as a country, as as a planet, we are stronger when we are connected to one another, that there is no shame in investing in our relationships uh, and that there is no shame in needing one another uh, because we evolve <laughs> to be interdependent. And that's how we go farther. It's how we all do better. Love it. So great. So if you're hiring a secretary of loneliness, I might apply. If that position is open now. <laughs> Green is very social. She'd be awesome. Wonderful. Good to know. <laughs> a little too social. A little too social. But before we go, Dr. Murthy, I'd love to ask you, what does a U.S. Surgeon General want to ask Lisa? Got any questions for me? I have too many (laughs) questions to ask, but I guess one thing that I would wonder about is, Lisa, you've done such a beautiful job like helping parents navigate uh, these last few years, and not just the pandemic, but you know, challenges that preceded the pandemic. I'm I'm curious, sort of, when you talk to parents about the stresses that they are contending with, is there something that has bubbled up to the surface as something that they would find helpful, like a common thread? that most parents say, hey, if I had this, that would make my life a lot more manageable or enable me to, to be a better parent to my kids? Hmm. When I talk to parents 
who are really feeling strained by the reality of their family life. To me, the theme that seems to recur is, my kid is in distress and I can't make it go away. Or my kid sometimes has distress and I can't prevent it from happening. Hmm. And what I, I, I worry that parents have somehow gotten the message that you should be able to shield your children from pain. If your kid is in distress, like you said, it's somehow your fault. And what I would want parents to know is that I think sometimes the way we can be most useful to our kids is to not be frightened mm -hmm. of their pain or their worries, to not minimize them, to not try to hurry them away, um, but to take very seriously that they have sometimes negative feelings and to show them with our own steady presence that they don't have to be scared of their negative feelings and we're not scared of our negative feelings. But I worry with so much appropriate, often, headlines about adolescent mental health concern, kid mental health concern, that parents are now feeling frightened of distress in their kids. And so what I would say is that parents need more support around the fact that no matter what they do, there will be times when their kids are really in quite a bit of distress, just in the natural course of life, and that this is not a sign that they have somehow failed or not come through as a parent. And um, then the support to be there for their kids, because it's very hard when your kid's in pain. Yeah, no, that is uh, such uh, important points you raise, and, and real wisdom, I think, that you shared with parents. I mean, if we think about our own upbringing as kids, we all went through distress and moments of loss and uh, and anger and misunderstanding and relationships and mm -hmm. friendships that were lost and then formed. And I think those ups and downs are are normal, but I can appreciate that now it's hard for parents to know when those negative emotions are normal versus when they're leading to a dangerous place of self-harm. And so I, I really sympathize with with parents there. I do think, you know, as much as I, you know, we often tell, you know, kids when we're talking to them and young adults about the power and importance of reaching out to one another, um, I think that's so important for parents to do with each other as well, uh, to reach out and to check on one another, recognizing that as perfect as things seem on the outside, I think a lot of parents are actually having a tough time in navigating difficult circumstances and have a lot of questions uh, about how to manage things, whether it's how their kid interacts with social media or how they're dealing with newer with AI or with other tools and uh, sort of shifts in the environment that inevitably come our way. Um, you know, I'll ask you to say this, Lisa, I, I, I think that moments of crisis, and I think we are living in one of those moments now, I think they have the power to not only reveal who we are, but to help us shape who we become. And this is one of those moments where I think, I think of it as a moment of identity where we have to ask ourselves, like, who do we choose to be mm. in this moment where so many people are struggling, are feeling invisible and unseen, or be, are beating themselves up thinking that they're being bad parents or they're being bad kids? Like, I don't, what I think I don't believe is I don't believe that we are a nation of bystanders who just sit by and watch others suffer and just go about our own ways. We may do that, but I don't think that's really who we are deep inside. I think that we are a nation of courageous and kind people who, when given the opportunity, step up to help one another, uh, not because it benefits us, but because it's the right thing to do. 
uh, because we know that reducing suffering around us um, is something that we should all do and something that we'd want someone to do for our kid if they were having a hard time. Um, I think this is a, a moment to step into that identity as courageous and kind healers, because that is who I think we have the power to be. You know, so often we think about healers as the nurses and doctors in our communities and and the, the therapists and others, and they are absolutely uh, the healers that we that we need. But we all have the power to help each other heal because we have the ability to be kind, to be generous, to express our compassion mm-hmm. and our love for one another. And we can do that in small, brief moments, uh, simply asking people how they are and pausing to listen or helping somebody uh, pick up the papers that they just dropped or uh, giving someone space, you know, to go ahead of us in line if it looks like they're having a bad day and they they really need it. These small acts of kindness, they go a long way to not only helping people feel better, but to reminding us of our identity, of who we really are. Because that, mm-hmm. I worry, Lisa, is one of the great casualties uh, of crises like this is that we may lose sight of who we are, that we may just come to accept the fact that, you know what, the world seems more mean, it seems more lonely and isolated, it feels that people are out for themselves, maybe that's just who we are. But I don't think we should accept that, because I don't think it's the truth of who we are. I don't think it's who we are in private moments. And I have a chance to, as I travel the country to meet and encounter so many people who are doing beautiful things for the people around them in their life, like nurses and doctors who are putting themselves at risk at times to help people who are sick, neighbors who are dropping mm-hmm. food off because they know that their neighbor is having a hard time, uh, teachers who are reaching into their own mm-hmm. pockets to buy pencils and art supplies for their kids because they know budgets are tight at home. We don't read about these in the papers, but these speak to who we really are. And this is our time, I think, to really reclaim that identity as courageous and kind healers. Well, thank you. Such an honor to have you with us. So appreciate your messages. I I just love, we're so grateful for your time, but I just love that you had focused so much on loneliness after leaving office and you've made it such a cornerstone of talking about mental health and and how we look at it. Um, It's been such a game changer. I also want to plug, um, Surgeon General does have that podcast I mentioned, House Calls with Dr. Vivek Morthy, where he invites guests and listeners. Um, You definitely want to check it out. You can tune in to House Calls on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, And we'll put a link to those advisories too. I think it's well worth the read if you haven't read it yet. Uh, We'll put that all in our show notes. Dr. Morthy, thank you so much. We hope you'll come back and maybe tell us who your new Minister of Loneliness is. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Brina. Thank you so much, Lisa. I love this conversation. Most importantly, thank, thank you for all the good energy and wisdom you're bringing to the world. I really appreciate you both. Thank you Wonderful. so much. Have a good one. Boy, what a conversation. I, I, um, I'm surprised. Often when you get government officials, they find a way to kind of not answer your question. He answered all of our questions. And so thoughtfully. I mean, really, it's, it's very moving to, um, to have conversations with him. He thinks about things so deeply and is so, um, such a generous spirit. Yeah, it really was incredible. So how do you top that? <laughs> what do you have for us, Lisa, for parenting to go? Well, I think for parenting to go, I'm just going to underline something he said. There was a phrase, he used many beautiful phrases, but he said, um, lives that are rooted in relationships. And I think, um, you know, when I think about what promotes health in any of us, you know how in real estate they say location, location, location. 
I think in our lives it's relationships, relationships, relationships. This is true for kids, true for teens, true for us. And um, I'm going to think long and hard about all of the good advice he gave about what that means, both big and small, you know, how we organize our lives and also our small gestures in the day. Um, I think we should all try all the time to be rooted in relationships. It's not something you consciously think about, but after this podcast, I just realize why that is so important for mental health. Yep. It's everything. And Lisa, next week, our conversation, we're going to talk about slurs. How do you get your kids to stop using slurs? Or if their friends are using slurs, how do you educate them about it? Talk about not rooted in relationships. (laughs) You're absolutely right. (laughs) Absolutely right. I'll see you next week. I'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe to the Ask Lisa podcast so you get the episodes just as soon as they drop. And send us your questions to asklisa at drlisademore.com. And now a word from our lawyers. The advice provided on this podcast does not constitute or serve as a substitute for professional psychological treatment, therapy, or other types of professional advice or intervention. If you have concerns about your child's well-being, consult a physician or mental health professional. If you're looking for additional resources, check out Lisa's website at drlisademore.com. We'll see you next week.